Episode, there's promising new research for multiple cirrhosis. Scientists are leaving COVID high and dry with the help of the humble cannabis plant, and gene editing is coming to the UK. But first, it was on this day in 2020 that China locked down the city of Wuhan and its 9 million people in an effort to control the city's COVID-19 epidemic. Two years later, we're still working on getting that pesky virus under control. Multiple cirrhosis is a progressive neurodegenerative disease that affects nearly 3 million people worldwide. Despite decades of research, the cause of MS has remained a mystery. Now new research from Harvard points to one of the chief suspects, the Epstein-Barr virus. So this really has been uh, the culmination of you know two decades of work by us and other um, investigators around the world. That's Dr. Cassandra Munger, a senior research scientist in the Department of Nutrition. Uh, I have been working in MS research for over 20 years. We have been focusing on Epstein-Barr virus and other risk factors for um, the development of MS. Epstein-Barr virus, also known as EVB, is one of several known herpes viruses. It's one of the most common in humans, infecting between 90 and 95 percent of adults. EBV has been particularly difficult to study because it's such a ubiquitous virus. You know, about 95% of the world's population is infected with EBV, um, but MS is extremely rare. So in order to really show in sort of an observational setting that EBV is likely a cause of MS, we need to have a group of individuals who are EBV negative, who we can then follow over time to see if and when they become EBV positive. And if so, if experiencing that primary infection then increases their risk um, of MS. So the research team needed a huge set of data. They analyzed 62 million serum samples and medical data collected from more than 10 million U.S. military service members. And they found that EBV infections increased the odds of an MS diagnosis during their service by more than 32-fold. Mariana Cortez is a research scientist who also worked on the study. The way to think about it is that MS is likely a rare complication of this viral infection. Uh, we see this uh, in other diseases right, um, or exposures. Um, many more people smoke than potentially get lung cancer. You can uh, think of many more examples like that. So likely EBV infection is um, the most important factor that puts you on a high risk for MS, but then there are probably other things that play a role that need to uh, come along your life course uh, to for you to really develop that disease. Well, there are some genetic factors and risk factors like low levels of vitamin D, a history of smoking and obesity early in life. EVB seems to be the common denominator. And now that the initial trigger for multiple cirrhosis has been identified, perhaps it could be eradicated. While there's no vaccine against the Epstein-Barr virus yet, many groups are trying to develop one. And earlier this month, Moderna announced that it began testing mRNA vaccines in people. I'm hoping to, in some years, maybe we, we will be able to say we can cure MS or, uh, you know, really give hope to so many patients and families. For me, it really does feel like, you know, the culmination of 20 years of work, you know, that we've been incrementally moving toward this paper, toward this study, um, knowing that this is what it was going to take to really show that EBV is a cause of MS.
By 2050, more than 153 million people could have dementia, up from 57 million in 2019. Experts are warning lifestyle habits, obesity and smoking are among the risk factors likely to drive the increase. Emma Nichols from the University of Washington authored the paper. She says cases are likely to rise in every country, but researchers estimate that North Africans and the Middle East in particular are likely to see a dramatic rise. The projections in, in the in North Africa and the Middle East were, were quite large, um, and this was due to um, large increases both in population growth and population aging. And so these two demographic factors, um, in particular in that region, drove these large anticipated increases in dementia burden. Dementia leads to a loss of brain function, thinking, reasoning and memories. Researchers say that although the numbers are not set in stone, they should be a warning to act now. This is an important disease to consider um, in terms of future planning, no matter where you are. Europe will see less of a spike with an estimated 14 million cases in 2050 compared to around 8 million now. Experts like Dr. Kara Harrison-Denning from Dementia UK believes this is part due to a longer history of grappling with unhealthy lifestyles. Healthy diets, lower alcohol intake, stop smoking. Uh, so there's this sort of mantra, look after the heart and you'll look after the head. We're now starting to see a decrease in the numbers of some dementias, such as vascular dementias. So the, the sort of health promotion elements of managing risk factors is starting to have an impact. Overall, we still do need to um, consider the importance of, of any increase and in, in preparing for um, the needs of this population, um, as well as any potential interventions and future research that can help us. So to come on the Smart 7 Sunday, the science behind treating COVID with cannabis and what's next for Tonga's volcano eruption. According to new research, there's a plant that could help fight against COVID-19. It first evolved about 28 million years ago on the eastern Tibetan plateau, and depending on how you spent your college days, it might look a bit familiar. According to a lab study published in the Journal of Nature Products, compounds from cannabis prevented the virus that causes COVID-19 from penetrating healthy human cells. We found that there are three compounds in hemp, all cannabinoids, which binds to the spike protein of the SARS coronavirus 2 that causes COVID. Then we were able to test two of these compounds called CBDA and CBGA, and we found that these two compounds are effective individually in preventing the virus from infecting human cells. That's Richard Van Bremen, a researcher with Oregon State Global Hemp Innovation Center. Whilst these results are impressive, Richard emphasizes that they're based on studies in a lab and not on humans. Our studies at this point are preclinical. They are laboratory-based, cell-based, in vitro experiments with cell culture and live virus. We are in the process of developing and helping to work with clinicians to establish the efficacy of these compounds in clinical trials. And if you're hearing cannabis and getting worried, Richard says the compounds are not psychoactive, they won't get you high, and they found to be most useful in preventative approaches. For people who've been exposed to other individuals with COVID and need to isolate, could take a, a pill like a cannabinoid extract and stay healthy because of the antiviral capability of these compounds. People can ought not to be relying on them, say, when hospitalized with severe COVID infections. I wouldn't advocate for using cannabinoids to treat them to get well. We anticipate that ingesting these compounds as pills, tablets, that sort of thing as dietary supplements or as pill form as medicines 
will be more effective than smoking or vaping because the acid forms of the cannabinoids like CBDA are sensitive to heat. Although cannabinoids have a long history of safe human consumption, more research is needed to determine just how effective it could be in combating COVID. We believe that quite quickly we'll be able to move from these preclinical findings to the clinic and demonstrate efficacy in people. The reason we can move quickly is because of the experience we already have had with over-the-counter hemp preparations and extracts containing cannabinoids. I'm very hopeful that we'll see clinical evidence during the next several months that cannabinoids and cannabinoid mixtures can prevent COVID from occurring in people exposed to the virus. On the 15th of January, Tonga's Honga Tonga volcano violently erupted. The underwater volcano sent tsunami waves across the Pacific as far as the Russian Far East, Chile and Peru. With such a far-reaching impact, you might wonder what other effects could be witnessed from the event. After all, there is a long-standing theory that large volcanic eruptions have led to mass extinction in the past. Koti Young is an associate professor at the Singapore University of Social Scientists and he explained exactly what he thinks what could come next. Now, there are two effects one can think of. Uh, one is concerns uh, the presence of sulfur dioxide gas, which uh, by the time it enters the stratosphere, it would have been converted into sulfate crystals. Uh, we know that sulfate crystals scatters sunlight, so there is a possibility one might imagine theoretically that uh, it might cool the Earth's surface because it scatters the sunlight and hence less sunlight reaches the surface. Um, the amount of sulfur dioxide uh, ejected is about 400 million uh, kilograms and that is an amount that is about 50 times less than a very famous uh, 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 volcanic eruptions uh, by the uh, Pinatubo in Philippines. And that means um, it cannot have as great an impact as the Pinatubo eruption. The Pinatubo eruption caused uh, something like uh, 0.6 degree Celsius of cooling on the Earth's surface. Um, so this one, being 50 times less, uh, will not really have a substantial impact on the uh, global surface. Um, but there's another aspect to consider. Um, we might worry about the carbon dioxide that is ejected into the atmosphere. Um, because we know that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and greenhouse gases are the responsible for our human-caused uh, global warming today. But again, the amount of carbon dioxide that is ejected is much smaller compared to the amount of carbon dioxide emitted by our um, industries and our transport. And so even the greenhouse warming by the carbon dioxide ejected by this volcano is negligible. Um, so in, in terms of these uh, uh, impacts, uh, one, one can be assured that uh, not much global impact will be seen. Still to come on the Sunday 7, scientists are tricking mosquitoes with fake blood and we hear about how climate change is impacting everyone's favourite flightless bird. Right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. The saying goes, you can get more flies with honey than vinegar. But Swedish scientists are taking this a step further. They develop synthetic blood to attract and kill malaria-carrying mosquitoes. If you find a molecule producing by the parasite, malaria parasite, we can add these molecules to any solution. And that molecule actually makes us tasty for mosquitoes. And then if we add this molecule to other products like bitter juice, we can make products can attract the mosquitoes. And if we add a trace of toxin in it, combined with these molecules, mosquito eat at it and die. That was Dr. Nushin Amami, a molecular infection biologist and co-founder of health tech Molecular Attraction. They claim the cheaper targeted method of pest control could be an alternative to mass pesticides that impact the entire ecosystem. Dr. Legi Natchewicz is the CEO of Molecular Attraction and explains... So at the moment, the most effective way of fighting mosquitoes is still using pesticides. But we know that pesticides are killing not only mosquitoes, but also other insects and other um, forms of life. Plus, they're dangerous for people. So if we can use something which is as cheap and as scalable as pesticides, we can actually eliminate them. Our product is environmentally friendly because it doesn't kill other insects and uh, also it's harmless for people. Mosquito-borne diseases kill more than 700,000 people every year, and malaria alone accounts for half of that. I usually try to avoid every single uh, weapon type of uh, analogy, but here it's like instead of having just carpet bombing, this is more like a smart bombs which are directed into one particular target. Pesticides are killing every single insect which are coming in contact with, right? Here, even in a very dense environment, especially in the jungle environment or tropics where you have a lot of insects, we can pick the ones which we want to get rid of and target those and leave alone all the rest of the ecosystems. This week, the UK Parliament passed new legislation that is designed to help trials of gene-edited crops in England. It's part of a gradual approach towards gene editing by the UK Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs after public consultation last year. If gene editing your dinner sounds a little too sci-fi for you, you have nothing to worry about. Dr Gideon Henderson is DEFRA's chief scientist and, as he explains... For centuries, humans have been breeding our crops and our animals to make them better for our purposes. Nearly all of the crops and animals that we rely on for our food now have come about through this natural breeding process. And they've deviated now a long way from the native species that we find in the wild. Now this breeding process, while very advantageous, takes a very long time. It can take decades or longer to breed a new type of crop or livestock for our advantage. The gene editing works by making very precise cuts um, in the genetic sequence so you can remove particular genes from within a species and you can potentially move genes within that species as well. It differs from other forms of genetic modification 
which are more commonly used to insert genetic material from a different species into the species you're interested in. And gene editing is nearly always used to make modifications within the same species and therefore mimics closely the process of natural breeding. We can combine the traits within a species that will enable that species to be resistant to pests or to disease and therefore enable us to lower the use of chemical pesticides in the environment with significant environmental benefits. We can also breed um, using these genetic engineering approaches crops that are more resistant to climate change. Scientists in Antarctica have discovered that different types of penguins are facing different types of consequences of climate change. Some species are declining in numbers as a result of disappearing sea ice, while others are increasing due to rising temperatures. Michael Wethington is a researcher from the American Stony Brook University and is working on the front lines of Antarctica's changing climate. For the rest of his research time, Michael compares the numbers of penguins with previous records to give an indication how climate change might be affecting survival of different species. They're primarily looking at Adali and Gentoo penguins. The Adelie penguin, which is has a really sort of tuxedo-like image. They're they're very cute and very proper looking. Gentoo penguins are have a bright red beak, uh, sort of a bright orange red beak, uh, and a really cute white patch on the top of their heads. They're uh, sweet as a button, um, and are they're just wonderful to work around. On the latest expedition, they discovered a new Gentoo penguin colony on Anderson Island, making it one of the southmost records for Gentoo penguins breeding in Antarctica. They're more tolerant to, to, to warmer conditions that lack really heavy sea ice. Um, we, we've kind of seen this as a case where you actually have uh, uh, a species in the, that in the face of climate change and a warming region of Antarctica, their populations are actually sort of dramatically increasing. But for the coal-loving Adelie penguins... When we find Adelie penguins, you typically know that sea ice is nearby. And whenever you know, we've seen sea ice declining or disappearing altogether, then we're seeing co uh, corresponding penguin populations, or Adelies, decline substantially. While we still have time and we still have penguins existing and not you know, going to extinction as a result of climate change, this gives us a really unique opportunity to both identify locations within Antarctica that are really important for establishing marine protected areas. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favor and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7 a.m. with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.